There, if you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to keep them open just um, because I'll be referring to it through this and also to make sure that what I'm saying is correct because I would hate to say something that was wrong and if it is, please come and speak to me. <laughs> um, before we come to it, we will just uh, pray again. Lord, as we come to your word, may you speak to us through it. May we be shaped by it. Lord, may your spirit be at work in our lives, in our hearts, um, through our desires to bring you glory. Amen. So, um, if we go to the next slide, Mark. So imagine waking up on a ship like this, adrift in the vast expanse of the ocean. There's no land in sight. For those of us that don't know how to sail, I definitely don't know how to sail, this would be a daunting reality. And the only lifeline available is a book entitled Sailing for Dummies. In its pages lie the instructions for steering the ship, navigating unknown waters and weathering potential storms. Your ultimate aim is to return to the security of land, your true home. But now you could say, because my home is really on land, I don't need to learn how to sail. I don't need the contents of this book, Sailing for Dummies. I don't need to live my life in a certain way. I'm sure to hit land soon as I drift about. Even though your home is on land, we would all think it would be silly if you just sat in the boat and let it drift. Even though the boat is a temporary home, we would expect, if we were in the situation, that we would be stirred to action. We would expect that because of your hope to get to land, you would start to learn the intricacies of sailing. You would grasp how to navigate and you would prepare for potential storms. That is because of your hope of reaching your home it then affects of how you live here and now on this boat. Now, this is a bit of a strained analogy for what Peter is writing about in this letter. Because Peter, he is writing to these Christians um, and he's writing to them about their eternal destination. That this world is not their home. That they are strangers and exiles here. Scott introduced us to this last week uh, with a picture of an eternal inheritance, one that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. But that doesn't mean we can sit idle and drift to eternity. Peter is writing to let these Christians know that there is a way to live right now. That in the light of eternity and their eternal destination, they should be stirred to action. And he, in fact, spends the rest of his letter giving pointers of how to live in light of this. So if you look at me at verse 13 there in First Peter, he starts off at the beginning of our passage, therefore, preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. Peter's saying, get ready for what you're about to hear. Prepare your mind. Think clearly about these things. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How are we to live as Christians? We are to live lives with our hope fully on Jesus, with a Christ-centered hope. As Christians, we look forward to a day where Jesus will come back, where he will come and reign for eternity, where we will experience eternity with God. At the moment, Jesus is brought close to us by the Holy Spirit, but in eternity, we shall see Jesus as he is. We shall see him face to face. We will be physically close. That will be our eternal home. That as Christians, we are living, waiting for the return of the King. We are waiting for his reign to be fully established on this earth as he has promised. So we have a Christ-centered hope. But this is a sure hope as well. It is a hope we can put all the eggs into this basket because the promises of God are certain. If you look down to verse 23, um, it says this, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then it goes on. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass wither, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word, God's promises to us in Jesus are imperishable. They are certain. Everything else in this world fades or perishes, but our hope in Jesus will not perish. It's not like the grass of the field or the flowers. It's at the other end of the perishable scale because God's promises remain forever. Peter wants these Christians to be living with a Christ-centered hope and sure and certain in that hope, sure that it is an imperishable hope. So we have this certain Christ-centered hope, but we also have a holy hope. If you look at, back up to verse 14, it says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Look what Peter is telling these Christians. He is calling them to live lives in a different way than the rest of their culture in a radically different way from their family and their friends. Remember who Peter is writing to. These are first-generation Christians. These are people that have become Christians, people that have had their lives radically changed by the gospel and as a result are being called to live in a radically different way. They are being called to live as strangers, as exiles in this world, if you look at verse 17, Peter uses this phrase. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter wants these Christians to live like exiles, like strangers. 
knowing that this world is not their home, not being conformed to the previous ignorance before, of who they were before they knew God. But he wants them to have their hope in Jesus. They, he wants them to be conformed to be holy. If you look at verse 15, it says, he who called you is holy. You also be holy. Holiness has this idea of being set apart, that these Christians, as they live as exiles, as they live as strangers in this world, they are set apart from the rest of their communities, from the rest of their families. This is a similar idea in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel were called to be a holy people, a people separate from all the other nations. Because this is what Peter quotes. He quotes from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is, was directed at the people of Israel because they were to be marked as different from all the other nations around them. That because of their relationship with God, they were to be holy. Because of their proximity to God, they were to be holy. Because the Lord was holy, Israel also needed to be holy in order to be close to him. So this verse from Leviticus, Peter applies it to these Christians and he applies it to us as well. To, Christians are to be holy because God is holy. Like ancient Israel, we have a proximity to God we have a closeness to God, and it is one that is greater than that of ancient Israel. Because the Lord no longer dwells in a temple or a tent built by human hands as he did in the Old Testament, but God lives within us by his Spirit. And what's more, as Christians, we are united to Christ. We, the church, are united to Christ in such a way that we are described as being his own body. So because of our proximity, of our relationship to the Lord, because of how united we are to Jesus, we are called to be holy. As Christians, as we journey along in our should be one that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Um, our lives should be one that is less and less conformed to the image of this world and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. This is the process of sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us holy. As Christians, as we walk with God, we will become more holy. As people who have been transformed and indwelt by God's spirit, we cannot act as the world acts. A butterfly that has been transformed from a caterpillar can't keep acting like a caterpillar. Our hope in Christ is transformative. Our desires are transformed that we seek to be like Jesus. That as we read the Bible, as we read the word of God, as we see who God is, his character, we see that he is holy. We see that he is loving, that he is merciful. We want to be 
one and the same, of one mind with God. We want to be like God. We want to love what he loves and we want to hate what he hates. We want to be essentially holy as he is holy. But how do we do this? How do we act in one mind of God? You could say, how do we become holy? Because most of the time, I don't know about you, but I think about me, most of the time when I see this written down, as I read it out, I think this isn't a command I can keep. Because I know of all the things I do, all the things I say, all the things I think, and they're anything but holy. Many of my actions are anything but how Jesus would think, or anything Jesus would say, or how anything but Jesus would act. Because of my sin, how can I be holy? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever wonder, how holy am I? Well, we can do a quick quiz to think about it. Um, in your seats, we can do. We can ask three questions, and it is a, a judge the state of your holiness quiz. And it's three questions, very simple, yes or no. Question one, do you believe in Jesus? Question two, has Jesus paid for your sin? And question three, does Jesus' righteousness cover you? Because if the answer to all these things is yes, then you are holy. And as a holy people, you have a holy hope. And we only have this holy hope. Why? If you look at these questions, because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus we can have this holy hope. As the book of Colossians says, for you have died and your life is hidden with God. Because of Jesus' substitutional death on the cross, we can be viewed as holy because we are in him. His righteous, holy life covers ours. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see my unholy life infected with sin, but instead he sees Jesus' perfect, holy, spotless life. Isn't that astounding? That is why Peter can write this in such confidence. You shall be holy as I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We can live our lives full confidence and full assurance, knowing that we have been ransomed, knowing that our standing before God is holy, is righteous because of the precious blood of Jesus. If we are in Christ, we have been ransomed. We have been bought with a price. We have been ransomed from the futile, perishing ways into something imperishable. The ransom for salvation is as free as the air we breathe. It does not cost silver or gold, 
But salvation is not cheap. Their cost is blood. Peter's language here makes us think back to the Exodus story, to the first Passover, where the Israelites put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. This was to save the firstborns from the angel of death, if you remember from that. It was important that the lamb had to be without blemish and without spot. Look at verse 19. You see Peter using this language, using these images. Because that night on the first Passover, the blood of the lamb saved the firstborn children from death. The lamb's death was in place of the firstborn. So Peter picks up this idea, but Jesus is the lamb and it is his blood that covers us. It is his blood that saves us from death and not from death from one night, but from death eternally. The blood of Jesus is precious, as Peter says here. It is the most valuable thing in the whole universe because it's the only way for unholy people like us in our futile ways. It's the only way for us to be made holy, to be made acceptable to God. Only because of Jesus do we have the opportunity to be holy. Salvation is costly, but it is a cost that Jesus has already paid on the cross where he redeems us, where he purchases us by his blood. So positionally before God, we are holy, but still in reality, as we live our lives, maybe we don't feel holy. Maybe in how we live, we still feel, I still, I know God views me as holy, but I still don't feel holy. And maybe we think, I need to, I need to get my act together. I need to be holier. I need to read the Bible more. Maybe I should listen to more Christian podcasts. Maybe I need to serve more at church. Maybe I need to join a discipleship group. And while all these things are not necessarily bad, they are not the primary method for growing in holiness. Because being holy is not about being an expert in the Christian faith. It is not about having great knowledge or of reading the Bible lots or serving in church lots. Holiness begins with intimacy with Jesus. As we meet with Jesus, we meet the one who fulfills the law for us, the one whose death opens up a way for us to be with God through the shedding of his precious blood. What's more, um, he is the one in whom our lives are hidden with, the one who we are united to, the one, as we've already said, that all our hope is tied to. J.I. Packer um, says this about holiness. He says, the holiest Christians are not those are not those most concerned about holiness as such but those whose minds and hearts and goals and purposes and love and hope are most fully focused on our Lord Jesus Christ let me ask you this look at this quote does Jesus impact all these areas of your life your mind, your heart, 
your goals, your purposes, your loves, your hopes? Does Jesus factor into these areas of your lives? How focused are these areas of your lives on Jesus? As we live in Jesus, as we abide with him, as we focus on him, do we do so in a way that the person of Jesus has an impact or influence over our whole life, over our minds, hearts, goals, purposes, loves, and hopes? Because how do we live in holy hope? We live it by fixing our eyes on Jesus by focusing on Jesus, by abiding with him, he helps us live holy lives. Because fixing our eyes on Jesus, it allows us to forgive as he has forgiven us. It prompts us to be unselfish because Christ didn't gratify himself. It pushes us to love even as Christ has loved us. It humbles us because Jesus, who is greater than we can ever imagine, he humbled himself. As we abide with Jesus, we by the Spirit are pressed to be more like him. In Jesus, we see a faithful witness to the truth. Someone who thought more of godly poor men than of kings. Someone that is full of love and compassion for sinners, but someone who was bold and uncompromising in denouncing sin. Someone who did not seek the praise of men when he might have had it. Someone who went about doing good. Someone who relied on prayer. Here is our example of holiness. Our example is Jesus, our Savior. Let our inward desires press and strive to be more like him. Could you imagine if Christians all around the world had their hearts captured by the beauty that is in the person of Jesus? If they strived with all their being to be like him, imagine what that world would look like. Some people say we need to put Christ back into Christmas. There's a quote I came across on Instagram where it says this, let's put Christ back in what it means to be a Christian. Let's remember that we we are Christians not because we subscribe to certain ideas or theologies, but because we follow a person, because we love a person. There's a story, it is probably more fiction, in fact, um, about Abraham Lincoln. And it says, this is before he was president, he was traveling through one of the southern states. And as he was traveling through, he came across a slave market. And in this market, he saw a small girl being auctioned off into slavery. And he overheard in the crowd some nasty men placing bids for her. So moved out of compassion, He put his hand up and he placed a bid for the girl. And it was a substantial amount of money, far more than what would have been the value for the girl, more than she would have been worth. He wins the bid and purchases the girl. When he goes and meets this girl, 
Lincoln, he comes and he removes her chains. He takes off the shackles and he tells her, you are free. I have purchased your freedom. Understandably, the girl is amazed, but questions him. How can this be? I have done nothing to deserve this. That's all right, Lincoln says. I have paid the price. I have redeemed you. You are free to go and do as you please. Is that true, the girl said? Am I free to go and do that as I please? Because if that is true, if I am free to go and do as I please, then I would like to serve you for the rest of my life because of what you have done for me. She serves him not because she wants to pay him back, but as a response to the amazing grace, the great favor she has received. Like this slave girl, we should want to live with and live for the one who has redeemed us. We who are of such insignificant worth have been bought with something of infinite worth, something greater than the value of gold and something unlike gold does not perish, spoil or fade. Our lives are our response to the eternal hope we have in Jesus, our response to what he has done for us. So for all of us this week, and no matter what your weeks look like, let's get more of Jesus. Let's run to him in prayer. Let's pursue him in the scripture. Let's go from here this week to fix our eyes on Jesus, focused on him, to rest in him, to lean on him, to call on him, and to abide with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words, um, penned by the Apostle Peter many, many years ago. Thank you that your word will remain forever, that it still speaks today as clearly as it did to Peter's original audience. Lord, may these words have impact on our lives. May we meditate on them. May we see Jesus in them. This week as a church, may we this week as a church experience more of our Savior. May we cling to him this week in everything. Lord, as we go from here to live as strangers and exiles in this world, may your spirit be with us to help us live holy lives, lives pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.